Good morning, church. We'll be reading out of, uh, continuing out of John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 18, and it's on page 1057 of the Pew Bibles. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and after this, there was a feast of the Jews, yes. <laughs> and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another one steps before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, <clears throat> Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn. And there was a crowd in the, in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just thank you for these words. Lord, I just pray that you'd be uh, just putting uh, your words into, our, into Tyler's mouth to speak. And, and uh, we just pray that it would impact us and uh, change us, which is the whole Father. We just thank you, Father, for this day. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. You have a copy of God's Word. We will be in John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18 this morning. Well, it is a high privilege and honor to preach God's Word this one last time to you all. And uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't take a moment to thank you uh, for how you've loved and served myself and my family. Um, it's been a privilege to be here with you. Uh, it's a difficult thing to, to preach one last time. Uh, it's hard to know what to say. You almost want to get everything out in one last sermon. 
Uh, as I think about our text this morning where we will look at who Christ is and what he's done, it made me think a little bit of Vermont. You know, what do you tell people about Vermont that have never been here? Uh, it's a beautiful state. I'll never forget driving up from Rhode Island in the middle of January when we moved here three years ago and just the, seeing the, the change of no snow to everything covered in a, a foot or two of snow and, and nothing like I'd ever seen before growing up in the southeast or, or maybe hearing my friend tell me, hey, you got to wait till fall when you see the foliage. foliage. It'll look like the mountains are aflame with red and orange leaves, but until you actually see it, you don't even believe it. I think that's a little bit like our text today in the book of John, where John's writing this book so that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, that we could have abundant life in his name. Every chapter, we get another view of Christ, not too different from seeing Vermont in the different seasons. Every chapter reveals to us more of who Jesus is, why he came, but most importantly, why he's worthy of our lives. There's an illustration that I can't get out of my head that I heard this past week. I was listening to a sermon and uh, the preacher was telling of Charles Spurgeon. He's the prince of preachers, one of the most famous preachers that has ever lived. And, and there was an elder board and they'd gone to the same town where Charles Spurgeon has pre had preached. There were two men in this town during this great Victorian era, era of preachers. And, and this elder board was sent and they saw these two men were drawing crowds and the elders, the, the elders were sent to figure out why are so many people coming to these churches? And so they went to the first church in the morning. They heard this man preach, and it was glorious. And they, they walked out of the church, and they said, what a preacher. Man, we, we don't even need to go hear Spurgeon. But that Sunday evening, they said, well, we've, we've, we've been sent, so we're going to go. And so they went, and they heard Spurgeon preach, and they walked out. And when they walked out, they looked at each other, and they said, what a Savior. You see, he preached Christ. So that's my aim this morning. Not that I'm anything like Spurgeon, but as you'd walk away, you'd all see and say, what a Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you in the name of your Son, Lord, whose name is to be hailed above all names, Lord. For those of us that know him, who when we see him in glory, any accolades or things that we've done on this earth that are worthwhile will lay at his feet. Lord, I pray that we would behold your glorious son this morning. We'd do so together. We would delight in him. We'd cherish him. Lord, that we would walk away a people transformed by your word and your spirit to love Christ. People that are white hot with holiness that our coworkers, our family members, even our children could see Christ in us and see their need for him. May he be exalted above all this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's start with verses 1 through 9. I'll read them now. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem now there, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered. 
And a man was there who had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a sick a long time, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And immediately the man became well and picked up his mat and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So our text this morning in the book of John picks up where we left off last week when Jesus had healed the centurion's son. Verse 1 tells us that all of these things uh, or events, they had transpired and Jesus is going up to Jerusalem for a feast. And a few quick points here. Jesus is actually geographically, he's heading south from Galilee. Jerusalem is south of Galilee. Uh, but it's higher in altitude. And so that's why John is saying Jesus goes up to Jerusalem, though he's heading south. I think we can relate in our context here of Vermont, of going up often. So he's heading, he's heading up, though he's heading south. And the purpose of this journey is to celebrate a feast of the Jews. Now, there were several significant feasts that Jewish men specifically would have been required to attend. These feasts include Passover, referring back to the Exodus, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. And these three feasts in particular required a pilgrimage, pilgrimage of faith to Jerusalem, where the people could remember who God is, what he had done, and to worship him. Some scholars say that this feast may have even been referring to Purim. This is when uh, Queen Esther saved the Jews from the evil decree of Haman. Either way, the text doesn't say what particular feast. All we know is a significant feast, and that is why Jesus is heading to Jerusalem with his disciples. And as we study the life and work of Christ, context and location are very important. Again, John is writing this so that we may believe in Jesus. The healing we read about today takes place at the pool of Bethesda. And verse 2 tells us that this pool is by the Sheep Gate, where there are five porticos. And if you were go to go to Jerusalem today, uh, it's been unearthed, and you would see these five porticos where the pool of Bethesda is. It's confirmation that God's word is true that we can trust it and believe it. And right there by the pool of Bethesda, the text tells us there's the sheep gate. This is the gate, it's called the sheep gate, because this is the gate where the sheep came through to be sacrificed to God in the temple for the purpose of worship. This is a significant gate. If you go back and read the book of Nehemiah, chapter 3, verse 1, you'll find that this gate in particular is identified when the Jewish people are rebuilding the wall from their Babylonian exile. And this wall, this gate in the wall when it's being rebuilt, is the only gate that the priests set aside to sanctify. They prayed over this gate, that it would be set apart as holy. You see, it was a holy gate because the sheep, the blameless sheep, were brought in to be sacrificed to God. And here, a thousand years later, after the day of Nehemiah, here is Jesus by this consecrated gate. And some scholars and theologians would say, this is the very gate that the Lamb of God would walk through when he would go to Golgotha to die on a Roman cross. So there's rich symbolism throughout the book of John. But I want to make a point here. You've, you've got to be careful when you're reading the book of John. Uh, if you open up various 
uh, commentaries. Some people say, well, the five porticos represent the five books of the law. And so it's really Jesus showing that he's fulfilling the law or he's removing the people from the burden of the law. And I think that's a bit of a stretch. And the the point I want to make here, even as we're going through this, is you have to be careful with what, what Christian resources that you use. Not every resource is a good or useful resource. I think, I think the, the significance of the sheep gate does stand out, but I don't think the five porticos represent the five books of the law or the Pentateuch. Now, by this gate is the pool of Bethesda. And in the Hebrew or the Aramaic, it means house of mercy. And by this pool, the verse 3 tells us that a multitude of people, those who are sick, blind, lame, and withered, are lying here. And this isn't a few people. This is a multitude of helpless, destitute people. We're thinking hundreds here with the word multitude. And the ointment and the medicines of that day were insufficient to heal these people. So their only hope is to get into this pool. That is what they're hoping in. Again, as we unpack this text, there are some things that we need to deal with here. One of them is, if you look at your Bible, most of your Bibles, there's no verse 4. It goes right from verse 3 to verse 5. Some of your translations say in verse 4, it explains what happened when these, this multitude went in. This is what verse 4 says, if you have it in your Bible. It says, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, whoever got in first after the stirring of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever sickness with which they were afflicted. So we've got to deal with this. Why is verse 4 in some translations and not in others? Well, if you look at the old King James, it does have verse 4, but most modern translations don't include it. And here's why. The study of determining what is in the Bible and what is not in the Bible is called textual criticism. This is where scholars evaluate manuscripts and determine what is in the Bible and what is not in the Bible. The most accurate oldest manuscripts that we have do not include verse 4. So how did it get there? Well, what we believe is that older manuscripts, a scribe wrote in the side or wrote a footnote and said, hey, I think this is historically what happened. And it helps kind of explain verse 7 when the man says to Jesus, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I'm coming, another steps down before me. So it's as though the scribe through oral tradition is trying to explain the man wanted to get in because the people of the day believed that an angel stirred the waters. Well, I'll tell you, I think it's a lot of superstition, right? I think that's really what it is. Whether an angel stirred the waters, we're not sure. It seems to be at that time, they believed that these waters had healing. uh, There were healing uh, abilities in the waters. uh, But again, from I think the most accurate translation of the scripture that we have, verse four is not to be included and it's more of an anecdote than, than it is actual scripture. And a scribe added it in later. So in verse 5, where we pick up that there's a multitude of people laying there who are sick, there's one particular man, one man who's been sick for 38 years. The entirety of his life, all he has known is sickness. Now, we don't know how long he's been at this pool. 
and we don't really know how old he is. Uh, what we can, uh, n- what we do know is that the life expectancy of the day was probably 40 years old. That's not to say that people didn't live longer, but uh, due to the issues of medicine, perhaps ch- uh, death in childhood, uh, this man was older. He'd been sick for a very long time. He'd been a slave to the weakness of his body, and he had not known normal help, health. All of his hope and effort, as you can imagine, is finding healing from this pool. It's probably if you were lying in sickness day after day, you were longing to be healed. When you wake, you wonder, am I going to be healed this day? As you go to bed at night, will the waters be stirred? Will I be healed today? And in verse 6, we see that Jesus enters the scene. And it would not have been typical for the normal passerby to go by this pool. Maybe you can relate. You drive down the streets of Barrie and you see homeless people and you look away. Where I was in San Diego, probably due to the, the climate, almost on every corner, you find someone destitute, maybe mental illness, sick. You look away. That's not what Jesus does here. He has a reason for everything that he does in the text that we've been studying, whether it's the woman at the well a few weeks ago or the centurion last last week. Jesus does not look away. He enters into this space and time for a purpose. Uh, There's an intentional interaction in everything that he does. And this is further emphasized in verse 6, where the text reads that Jesus knew he had been sick for a long time. You see, Jesus singles out this one man among hundreds. He knows him. The Greek word for know here provides an understanding that Jesus specifically picked this man out. It was a supernatural knowledge that Jesus had as the Son of God, similar to when Jesus calls Nathaniel out in chapter 1 from several weeks ago, where he says, Nathaniel, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Again, John is teaching us here who Jesus is, and I think he's providing for us an illustration that Jesus is indeed all knowing. He's omniscient. He knows that this particular man has been suffering for 38 years, that this one man among hundreds, this one man among hundreds has been lying in hopeless physical despair. And our merciful Savior singles him out and comes to him. Look at what Jesus says. He says, do you want to be healed? Or in the King James, wilt thou be made whole? What a bizarre question for Jesus to ask someone that's been sick, destitute for 38 years. This man has been in this state the entirety of the majority of his life. And he hopes against hope that one day he will find himself in this pool to be healed. Well, of course he wants to be healed, Jesus. You know this man. You've singled him out. Why why would you ask this man this question? You may be thinking yourself this morning, Lord, I am ill, or my family member is ill. Would you ask me the same question that you've asked this man? Make me well, Lord. Make me whole. You know what I need. So why does Jesus ask this question? What is he getting at here? Well, I think we'll find out soon enough in the text. But before we do, look at this man's response. 
He doesn't directly answer Jesus' question here. He essentially says, I, I, I can't be made well. If, if I could get into this pool when the waters are stirred, I would, but I'm never the first one in. I'm always beat to the punch. Thus, I must remain in this helpless estate. That's what this man is thinking. He presumes that there is no hope of him ever being healed. And I can't but stop and think for a moment and wonder, is that where you are today? We've got to understand here that what Jesus is asking this man, Jesus is simply not pointing to this man's physical need to be healed. I think he's pointing to his spiritual need to be healed. He's pointing for the need for his soul to be saved. This miracle is simply not for this man and others to see that Jesus has the body, has the power to preserve the body, but it's that Jesus has the power and authority to save the soul. So I wonder this morning if you have past sins and shames that pre prevent you from trusting in Christ, from reaching out and laying hold of him and what he offers. That is what Jesus offers to all who call upon his name in the gospel. There is no sin, there is no shame too great. Your past has no power over the, the cleansing forgiveness that comes through the gospel. You see, the blood of Jesus is so immeasurably powerful, there's not a sinner that cannot be saved by it. So I ask you, dear brother, dear sister this morning, do you want to be healed? Perhaps you're on the opposite end of the spectrum this morning. You're full of vim and vigor. Your finances are in order. Your family is well. You think, I lack nothing. I can't relate. You do not see that though you may not be like this man physically or material, materially, your soul has been a state, in a state of destitution all of your life. You don't realize that your soul is blacker than the darkest night sky and you are in desperate need of Christ. Friends, whether you live in great shame over past sins or cannot see your sins for your own blinding pride, you must know that this life is a mist. We're only here in this life for but a moment. The great words of the missionary C.T. Studd ring true. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. You see, the greatest question you can respond to in light of eternity is that question that Jesus poses to this man at the pool of Bethesda. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to be made whole? Do you want to drink from the living waters that never go dry and the thirst that will parch your weary soul? This is the only question that will matter in light of eternity. On that great day of judgment, only those that have been healed and made whole in Christ, only those that have been washed by his blood, only those that have inherited an alien righteousness and experienced a supernatural regeneration will enter into glory and find unspeakable joy that is promised for those in Christ. I think that is what Jesus is getting at when he asks this perplexing question. This is the purpose of this healing. It's not that this man's body needs to be made well. It's that the blackness of his soul needs to be made clean and whole. The same is true for you and me. I think another question to ask this morning is, do you want Christ? Do you see your need for healing? Or like this man, are you trying to fix your own problem through the wisdom of the world? 
The Lord Jesus isn't interested in how good of a neighbor you are or how hard of a worker you are or how loving of a spouse or parent you are if you haven't at first thrown yourself out him thrown yourself at him and cried out for mercy that he might heal you. If you haven't been healed by the great physician, you may be doing all of these things and more while your very soul wastes away waiting for that judgment day. For those that are in Christ this morning, have you forgotten the healing that Jesus has accomplished on your behalf? When was the last time you drank from these living waters that satisfy your soul? What are you to do this morning? It's to run to Christ, to cling to his feet and his ankles, to not let him go. He is both all we need and all we have. He alone is our hope. Jesus in this text shows us his desire is to heal. Look at verses 8 and 9. At the command of Jesus, this man gets up and walks after 38 years. The very internal makeup of the man is changed instantaneously at the power of the words of Jesus. The power of Jesus to heal and save is just as possible today as it was over 2,000 years ago. This man, day after day, fell asleep in the midst of dying and decaying people, and he awoke each morning to the same smells and sights, to an aura of despair and helplessness. Then out of nowhere, seemingly, the God-man Jesus gives him life, new life in a moment. And this is the parallel to the gospel. We are dead in our sins. We're rotting in our flesh until Christ makes us alive. It's the gospel. It's the mercy of Christ to heal and to save. And today may be the very day of salvation for you. Maybe you've heard God's word up until this point and your heart is yearning for Christ. You see but a glimpse of the hope. You're to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. The instant Jesus gave this word, the man was healed and he took up and walked. Behold, the power of Christ. He is omnipotent. And it would be nice to end our story here, but that's not how verse 9 finishes in our first nine verses. That day Jesus accomplished this healing was on the Sabbath. Herein lies a great dilemma. So far in this book of John, Jesus has had, I would say, minimal conflict with the religious elite. As we studied in John chapter 3 several weeks ago, Jesus encountered Nicodemus, and he was quite teachable. He was interested in who Jesus was as well as his teachings. But now we turn in the Gospel of John where almost every story from here on out marches us to the cross of Christ. We've been given the geographic and historical context up until this point. Now we'll get to know more about who this man was that Jesus healed in the context of the Jews' opposition. Let's read verses 10 through 18. So the Jews were saying to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to carry your mat. But he answered them, he who made me well was the one who said to me, pick up your mat and walk. They asked him, who is this man who said to you, pick up your mat and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterwards, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. 
The man went away and disclosed to the Jews that it was Jesus that had made, them, made him well. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing things on the Sabbath, doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was also calling God his own father and making him out to be equal with God. The Jews mentioned in verse 10 are actually more than average Jews. The Greek here specifies that they were the religious leaders of the day. They were learned. They knew the law. Moreover, they knew and adhered to the oral traditions of that day. I preached a, f a sermon at East Randolph a few weeks ago about these oral traditions. They're known as the Mishnah, or the fence around the Torah. The elders, or the religious elite of that day, had created extra rules and requirements to make sure that no one got even close to breaking the laws of God. The problem is that these oral traditions became so rigid that they were, most, they were more closely followed and obeyed than the word of God. And they ultimately led the people of God to religious legalism that doesn't even honor God in the first place. They don't even follow the word of God anymore. They follow these rules. And a word of caution here, we need to be very careful before we cast stones at these Jewish leaders that we read about, for we can easily become just like them. The law of God did not forbid work on this. The, the law of God did forbid work on the Sabbath. The oral traditions established through the elders in the Mishnah here added extra requirements that God did not add to these people. Jesus knows this law of God because he is God. He also knows the traditions of the elders, these oral traditions that they'd established. He knows exactly what he's doing as he heals this man. He is directly confronting the Jewish leaders in their false obedience to God's words and desires. Again, Jesus could have healed this man any day, but he intentionally heals him on the Sabbath. He gives him the command to take up his mat and walk. Jesus knows that he's not breaking the law of God. This is not considered working on the Sabbath. But the Jewish leaders, again, had added these unbiblical rules to their tradition that would have prevented this man from simply picking up his mat. And this is where we get to know who this man is that Jesus mercifully healed. After the Jewish leaders attempt to rebuke him for carrying his mat, he immediately says, it wasn't me. It was this, it was this man that healed, healed me. He blames Jesus. And he is both the one that was healed, and he, he's the, both the one that healed me and the one that commanded me to pick up this mat. So rather than acknowledging the authority of Christ, this man quickly submits to the Jewish leaders who he was afraid of. He attempts to please them. Don't forget the rock from which you were hewn. It's easy to please your boss, your family, your friends, and your coworkers, and forget that you have been healed by the blood of Jesus. You bear his mark, and he bears yours on his hands and his feet. Don't sell him out when you look and act differently, as you should. The point of this interaction is clarified when the man is asked who healed him and who gave him this order. This man doesn't even know. You would think that if someone had healed you after 38 years of hopelessness, you might have at least gotten their name so you could write him a thank you card. 
This man has no idea that Jesus was the one that healed him. Perhaps to his credit, the text tells us in verse 13 that Jesus slips away quietly into the crowd. The man, however, makes no effort to find Jesus or to inquire about who is this man. But we need to make some observations now, both about this man as well as the leaders in the temple. We know that he is in the temple from verse 14 where Jesus finds him. Firstly, notice that the leaders are more interested and concerned about this man potentially breaking their oral traditions rather than acknowledging this miraculous healing of a man that has been unable to walk for over 38 years. I think this shows us the hardness of their hearts and their rigid religiosity that was detestable to God. This is the exact opposite of Jesus who looks on the crowd and sees the people as harassed and helpless, sheep without a shepherd. Where the leaders desire rigid obedience and falling into line, Jesus desires a heart of holiness. And so I think we need to pause for a moment and ask ourselves the question, are we also seeking to rigidly follow the laws of God? Are we seeking to know the God of the Bible and worship him? Let's add some pieces to the puzzle here so we can understand who this man was. At this point in the story, we know that this man has been unable to walk for 38 years. We see that Jesus walks up to him and asks him the question, do you want to be healed? Then Jesus heals the man. Then the man goes to the temple and is confronted by the religious leaders. And then he blames Jesus for healing him. And oh, by the way, at this point, the man still has no idea who Jesus is. And I want to ask you a question here. Was there any good in this man that made him a worthy candidate for this miracle, for this incredible healing? I think the answer to that is no. There was nothing good in this man. Sure, he had lived in this destitute state for 38 years, but even his behavior reveals the posture of his heart. And Jesus' response to him further reveals that he'd missed the point of the miracle. But I want you to see something here. I want you to understand a significant theological truth. There is nothing good in you and I. There is no reason for Christ to save us. As Jonathan Edwards famously said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. So why does Jesus heal this man? Why does he save us? Romans 5.8, but God demonstrate, demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the point. Christ, according to his sovereign will, in obeying the Father, heals this man in order that the riches of his glory may be on display. Even after Jesus confronts this man and tells him to go sinning no more, this man goes and tells the Jews, I know who it was. It was Jesus of Nazareth. So why did Jesus heal this man and why does he heal us? I think the answer to that question is found in verse 14. We have a bit of a cause and effect here. Jesus finds the man. He seeks him out after healing him. He's not done with this man. He has something to tell him. He says, look, behold, you have been made well. In the King James, thou art whole. But then he says something else. He says, now go and sin no more. You have been made whole and you, that you might be made holy. Jesus is telling this man, I've healed you for the purpose of holiness. And I think that's a word you and I 
need to be reminded of today. Christ does not save us and leave us. He gives us his church founded on his word. He gives us elders to shepherd us and fellow members to encourage us. He gives us the ordinances, all of these things he's given us for the purpose of holiness. We surely do not earn our salvation, but he does call us to respond to his mercy and obedience. Moreover, we will respond if we have been saved to our Christ, King, and Lord with obedience. It's evidence of being in the faith. If you read the book of 1 John, the entire book is written as a proof test to see if we are actually in the faith. Listen to the words of 1 John, verses 3 through 6 from chapter 2. The Apostle John writes, And by this we know that we have come to know him. If we keep his commandments, whoever says I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected by this. We may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. This passage from 1 John should give us a healthy fear of the Lord. Following Jesus is not to be taken lightly. We should be worried when we have friends and family members that do not obey the words of Christ. God, in his mercy, gives us this encouragement that obedience provides assurance of salvation. Disobedience, on the other hand, provides assurance of certain judgment. It's in the text to cause us to pause and to look at our lives in light of Scripture. If you hear nothing else from me this morning, hear this. Praying a prayer to ask Jesus into your heart one time does not save you. You must bear the fruits of keeping with repentance. That is what Jesus is saying to this man. If you truly appreciate the healing that I've offered, if you understand who I am and what I offer through my blood, this is your response. Go and sin no more. Listen, may the depths of your soul be shaken as you hear God's word preached. Jesus does not leave this man after telling him to stop sinning. What does he say? He says, sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. Do you know what Jesus is talking about here? Most scholars and theologians agree. Jesus is talking about hell, the eternal wrath of God. He is saying, listen, I have healed your body, but that's not what, really what you need here. I offer healing of your soul. But if you keep on sinning, if there's not genuine repentance and obedience, the only thing that awaits you is judgment. He's saying, I come now as the Lamb of God to suffer for the sins of the world, but I am coming again as the Lamb of God to rule the nations with a rod of iron. How do I know this? Well, if you look down at verse 29 in this text, it says, The day is coming where those who have done good in this life will be resurrected to eternal life, and those who have done evil will be resurrected for the purpose of judgment. Again, it is not good works that save, but good works are the evidence of having been saved. Jesus does not mince words here, words here with this man who had been 
destitute for 38 years. He's telling him something far worse awaits you than being immobile for 38 years if you don't stop sinning and find life in me. The judgment of God, Jesus is saying, is coming for all who do evil. Does this truth bother you this morning? Does your heart well up in frustration frustration when you think about the judgment of God? Or do you think, woe is me, for I'm an undeserved sinner that's received God's merciful grace? You see, the former is an indication that strict judgment awaits you. And the latter is an indication that you understand the gospel of grace and the eternal life that awaits you. When we meet Christ in all of his glory, whether we've trusted in him or not, every fiber of our beings will bow before his throne. I think the man in this story accepts the mercy of Christ and is grateful. I think he heeds the call to go and sin no more. The text tells us in verse 15 that he goes back to the Jews and said, it was Jesus, he was the one that healed me. And I don't think this man is going to tell them to get Jesus in trouble, but rather to ascribe the honor that Jesus is due. He is recognizing publicly that Jesus was, in fact, the one that had the authority and power to heal. The response of the Jewish leaders in verse 16 shows us that the remainder of this gospel story will take us on a journey to the cross. We see both in verses 16 and 18 that John the evangelist uh, says to us, and this is why Jesus, this is why they were persecuting Jesus along with, and this is why the Jews were seeking to kill him. You see, there is no neutral response to Christ. We either submit to him as king and Lord or reject him altogether. If you've been reading in the Robert Murray McShane Bible reading plan this day, it says that in the book of Luke chapter 20, Christ is the cornerstone. We will either fall upon him and be broken before him, or it says we will be crushed by him. Will you break before Christ and accept him, or will you reject him and be crushed? Verses 17 and 18 provide a, a fascinating truth for us to unpack as we wrap up our time this morning. We conclude with an understanding that the Jews are enraged and outraged at the ministry of Jesus. Firstly, he's healing on the Sabbath. Again, they had taken the law so, so far, law of God so far in their oral traditions that they were no longer pleasing to God. They were honoring God with their mouths, but their hearts were far from him. Do you see, they had begun to worship the Sabbath rather than the God of the Sabbath. Don't you see that the Lord is more pleased with genuine heart worship than ritualistic rules to be followed? They honestly thought that they were pleasing God by not attempting to serve on the Sabbath, by preventing people from even healing on the Sabbath. In verse 17, is quite interesting. The text says, and Jesus answered them. He responds to them directly about their incorrect view of the Sabbath. He says, my father is working until now and I am working. What is Jesus saying here? Why does he respond in this manner? Well, the religious leaders understood that although God rested on the seventh day, he does not stop functioning as creator of the universe. By the very power and authority of God's word, 
the universe is being held together at this very moment, even on the Sabbath. By the very power and authority of God's word, the, the molecules in your body are being held together. Your heart is beating to now, beating right now at the authority of Christ on the Sabbath. We see this in Colossians 1. Verses 16 and 17, where Paul writes, For by him all things were created in heaven or earth, visible and visible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. When Jesus says that my Father is working until now, and I am working, he is saying, I am Lord of the Sabbath. That his father works on the Sabbath because without him working, all of creation would degrade into utter chaos. On the Sabbath, the creator keeps the very stars in orbit, the tides coming in and out, the rain and snow falling, the sun coming out, even now according to the power of his word on the Sabbath. That there's nothing in this universe that is not subject to the rule and reign of Christ. We need to hear this this morning. You see, it does not matter if you've trusted in Christ for your salvation. He is Lord over all, whether you submit to him or not. He is Lord over this state, whether they amend the Constitution and make murder of an infant in the womb legal. He is Lord over this country, no matter how wicked we get. He is Lord right now in Ukraine over Vladimir Putin, no matter what happens. He is Lord, and he is ruling, and he is reigning. And he will for all eternity. But you see something here? This is exactly why the Jews, the Jews wanted to kill him. And this is exactly why he hung and died on a Roman cross. He died because of their sins. And he died because of our sins. Because the reality is unless he enlightens our heart, unless he illuminates our soul to worship him, we will not. We will hate him. We will not want his sovereign, authoritative rule over our lives. And again, the evidence that we do is we will obey his word, for we will love him when we see him as he is. As I close out this last time, the reality is I may never have an opportunity to preach to you again. And there's no greater or more significant truth that I could hope to convey to you that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is ruling and reigning, and that he does offer healing to the soul of all who call upon his name. But you also must know this. We will all stand before him very soon. And when we do, it will be too late. There will be no mulligan. There will be no opportunity to change our minds. So this morning, my hope is that you see the mercy and compassion of Christ in our text, where he singles this one man out, unworthy of healing, and offers him abundant life. You see, Christ alone has authority to heal and save. He alone has the compassion that is required when there is no good thing in us. And he asks this man over 2,000 years ago the same question he offers to you this morning. Do you want to be healed? Call upon the name of the Lord, for he is the great soul physician. He suffered and died that you might live. May we heed the words of Christ and see if he has made us well. See that he has healed us if he has for the purpose of his holiness to go and sin no more. This world is lost and dying.
Just like the masses of cripple, sick, and blind at the pool of Bethesda, so is Bethel, so is Royalton, so is Randolph, and so is Barry. Your neighbors, your co-workers, your friends, and your family are no different than this man, but they don't even know it. They're blind, but they realize they've never seen. They're sick, but they don't know what it looks like to be made well. They're crippled, yet they have no idea what it is like to stand upright and walk. These people, just like you and I, need the mercy and compassion of Christ. They need to stand before the cross and see the compassion of the Christ. They need to see that the wrath that is meant for you and I and for them was drank to the last drop drop by the Son of God on that hill, on that day, on that cross. They need to see that through Him alone can they be made whole. Through Him alone can they be healed. Through Him alone can they find salvation. My prayer for these two churches is for many years and generations ahead that you would make much of Christ, for that's what we will do in the next Let us pray. Heavenly Father, if we're honest, each of us are like this man. Lord, we are foolishly blinded by our sins. Lord, we don't oftentimes even know what you've done in our midst. Lord, we're so calloused and hard-hearted. Lord, we're in need of your word and your spirit to soften our hearts, that we may worship you. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room that is not called upon the name of your Son for salvation, that they would seek, that you would stir up in their hearts a desire to be healed. Lord, would we worship you in spirit and in truth as we close out this time. Would the Lamb of God receive the reward for his suffering? It's in his name I pray. Amen.